Hello and welcome back to the DPT School Study Guide. Long time no podcast, long time no speak. I know, I know it's been a while and we've missed each other. We are slowly closing in on threat level midnight of semester three, which is the OSCE. And what this podcast episode is going to serve to do is to go over not only what to expect of the OSCE, but the notes, tests, and measures necessary to complete the ASCII and do well on it. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and get right into it. The ASCII will begin with a five-minute history, a 15 to 17-minute physical exam, and 10 to 15 minutes um, to answer post-test written questions. Bear in mind that questions will be asked after the history and during the physical exam as well. Be sure to bring your blood pressure cuff, your stethoscope, your reflex hammer, and any paper notes to study beforehand. The test should run approximately 30 minutes per student, and my confidence says that it will be passed with flying colors by every student. So... Without any further ado, further ado, any any further of the adieus, we're going to um, actually talk about what is to be expected. So they're going to give us a sheet of paper with brief info about our patient, and then they're going to tell us what they want us to do first. Ideally, we're going to do history. Um, it's important, obviously, write down all of the findings as you take the history on your blank sheet. And if we miss anything important, then they will tell you at the end, here's what you need to know. Depending, you might lose points for not finding the info yourself, um, but you will need the info moving forward. And once again, you have five minutes to complete the history. Now, after the history is completed, the examiner is going to ask some questions. So, for example, what would be the first thing you do in your physical exam? The answer to that question would be observation. What would you observe for in the patient? You would observe gait, posture, body mechanics, edema, redness, any malalignments, and so on. And then what would come after observation? You would inspect the patient. So, first comes observation, then comes inspection. So, what would you inspect for in this patient. It's the same as observation. It overlaps. You would observe the gait, the posture, the body mechanics, the any sort of edema, any redness, any malalignments, and so on and so forth. What would you do after you first observe and then you inspect? Third would come palpation. You'd first observe, inspect, and then palpate. What would you be palpating for? You would palpate for warmth, any sort of deformities, any pain, any swelling, and where would you palpate? You would palpate the involved area. So now that you've observed, you've inspected, you've then palpated, what would you then do? After that, you would do range of, mo range of motion, resisted tests, and neuroscreening. And then you might have to field questions such as, why are you doing passive range of motion? What range of motion are you going to test? Is it going to be physiologic? Is it going to be active? Is it going to be passive? Is it going to be active assisted? And is it going to be accessory range of motion? And then you would possibly have to answer another question such as, uh, why will you perform that specific 
range of motion or range of motions. And make sure that you write down all your findings from these tests on your blank sheet. So first you're going to observe, then you're going to inspect, then you're going to palpate, and then you're going to do range of motion tests and neuro screening. After that, you will likely be given a sheet of paper that says do the following six things. The number one thing that is a guarantee on the OSCE is blood pressure. Blood pressure is going to be on the OSCE. You are um, allowed um, a plus or minus of eight on the systolic blood pressure or a plus or minus of four on the diastolic blood pressure. And bear in mind, you're going to be using the dual earpiece stethoscope. It's not going to just be one. You, it's going to be a little cumbersome, but just bear that in mind when practicing and studying. Now, obviously, we won't have actual patients on the OSCE, so you might get the correct reading, um, 120 over 80, for example, uh, but they might say, here's what you need to know. This patient has a blood pressure of 190 over 120 if that's relevant or important to the case. Next, you're going to have five under five other tests. Now, this could be manual muscle testing, goniometry, myotomes, dermatomes, sensation, uh, reflexes, neural tension, functional tests, etc. So, for example, they might ask, what is an appropriate dermatome test? Use the history, well, use the notes that you found in the history that the pain... Um, or whatever will lead you down a path to let you know what, what to test. So for example, uh, like pain or numbness or whatever to the, um, lateral malleolus of the heel, uh, not of the heel, uh, the lateral, um, malleolus or posterior heel, that's going to be S1. Or another example, if you have like um, any sort of pain or discomfort or whatever in the palmar aspect of the distal phalanx of your third digit or your middle finger, that's likely C7. So you would be doing dermatome or myotome testing to um, check for those areas and that it's going to lead you down that path. The examiner might also ask, choose an appropriate test for neural tension. For example, like an SLR test or a slump test. They also might say, pick an appropriate test to do demonstrate flexibility or muscle length. So you could do 90-90 for the hamstrings, the Thomas test, or the Ober test. And then you're going to also could possibly pick an appropriate goniometric measurement. So like shoulder flexion, extension, internal, external rotation. So you're going to list... I, I think it's as many options as you can, and then they're going to tell you which one they want you to do, but it'll lead you down that path to um, pick the appropriate one. But if you don't, even if you don't know it, you will still have to do the one that they have been provided a rubric for. Just bear that in mind when studying. So the examiners are going to be looking at where do we put our hands? Um, our body mechanics, body positioning. Uh, did we do the right test? Do we know what a positive test looks like? And um, if you perform something wrong, like a manual muscle test, you get the wrong grade. They will tell you what the correct grade is because it is, a, it, it is an important part of the case and it'll help you determine your next steps in terms of treatment and assessment and XYZ. So approximately 15 minutes for the physical exam. 
Following that, your examiner is going to go over the grade with you and you must have over an 80 to pass um, the practical portion before you can even pass the written portion. So it's not possible for you to get like a 70 and then you pass because you did well in the written. You are not allowed to take the written unless you get an 80 on the practical. Just another important thing to keep in the back of the head. Then approximately 10 to 15 minutes to do post-lab questions and um, post-test questions, not lab. Um, and there's going to be about four or five questions. You can keep your piece of paper that you took all your notes on. Um, some of the questions may include, is this patient appropriate for therapy? Do you treat this patient slash refer this patient? What do you think is causing the patient's problem? Would you treat them? Um, it won't ask how we would treat them. But it will ask, would you treat them? A uh, differential diagnosis. Is this a upper motor neuron or low, lower motor neuron and uh, lesion and why? So now that we've gone over all of the formalities of the OSCE, um, we're going to now go over notes uh, for, to, notes to prepare. Um, and, uh, and if you want to follow along, um, I just read through Mike's uh, notes on the formalities of the OSCE. And now I'm transferring over to Sean's notes that he sent um, on the OSCE. Shout out Sean and Mike. Whoop whoop. And I'm low-key stalling time because I'm at nine minutes and 50 seconds. And I want it to be that we can skip ahead to 10 minutes on the dot before we begin the notes in five, four, three, two, one. Beautiful. Hello, if you skipped ahead. Welcome. We're going to go over the notes for the OSCE. And if you want to follow along, I am uh, reviewing through Sean's notes that he sent. Once again, shout out Sean. Whoop, whoop. Um, and I think it's just called OSCE Study Guide, and it's the one with the table of contents. So if you want to follow along, that's the one I'm reading off of. So let's start off with taking a patient's um, medical history. So we're going to begin with their name, their chief complaint, uh, and the nature of the symptoms. So we're going to ask, can you describe the nature of your symptoms? Is it dull? Is it achy? Is it sharp? Is it stabbing? Is it radiating? Is it tingling? Is it throbbing? Also, just a little sidebar. I'm going to read these like I'm actually asking a patient. I'm not just going to read this like I'm reading off notes. I'm genuinely going to, you know, kind of get into the character a little bit of being an actual doctor of physical therapy, treating a patient. I don't know. I think that actually doing it like that just, you know, will uh, help with the muscle memory, so to speak. Pun intended. But I'm All right, let me shut the fuck up. Anyway, so what kind of symptoms are you experiencing? How easily provoked are your symptoms? Is there anything you do to relieve or better your symptoms, such as changing position? Is there anything you do to make your symptoms worse? Which positions increases or decreases your symptoms? Okay, okay. Does the pain decrease with rest? Psst. If it decreases with rest, it may indicate a musculoskeletal issue. When are your symptoms worse? Is it worse in the morning, at night? Okay, so does the pain worsen as the day progresses? Okay, so does the pain worsen with movement or does movement relieve your pain? Does this cause you to lose sleep? How often does this occur and for how long? Like, are they constant or do they come and go? Are they intermittent? Has anything changed in your daily routine over the past few months? Changes in a routine can provide some info about the instigating factor, needless to say. 
okay, so you're experiencing pain at night. So does the pain change or go away if you change positions? And are you able to go back to sleep? Does it prevent you from going back to sleep? And then we would ask about the onset of symptoms. All right, so how and when did your symptoms start? Was there something specific that happened that caused this pain or your symptoms to occur? Psst! A nonspecific mechanism or time of injury may indicate that the injury is probably caused by poor posture. All right, so when you started experiencing this, did this happen like automatically or did it just gradually start to get worse? Insidious onset. So did you like hit this muscle slash area slash whatever, or do you use it a lot? When did you first experience these symptoms? And then we'll ask about, you know, the sight of symptoms. Can you locate the area that you're experiencing the most pain with one finger? Or is there any other areas that you're also experiencing pain? Do your symptoms move around? Can you pinpoint your pain or discomfort? Like, are they localized to one area? Or like I said, do they move around? And then we could ask about medications. Are you currently taking any Are you currently taking any medications? If so, like what are you taking? Okay, okay. What are you taking these medications for? Right, right. Do these medications do you, that you know of do they cause any side effects? And if so, what what are these side effects? So then we will also ask about the history of the current condition. Have you experienced this before? And we'll ask that question if there are any previous bouts of the same illness or is this the present episode, uh, a recurrence of the same problem? Have you been treated for this before? Okay. And did, did those work? Have you had any medical conditions, illnesses, operations, surgeries, or injuries at all? Do you know of any coexisting medical problems? And then you may want to deep dive where they treated for those medical problems, where they treated in a hospital, any weight gain or loss for other medical problems. Ask if they have any high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, or heart disease. Can you rate your pain on a scale of zero to 10? Zero being absolutely fine. 10, we need to go to the emergency room. Have your symptoms been getting better or worse? Then we'll ask about their occupation. What do you work? What do, what do you do for work? What does your job require you to do? Are you working part-time or full-time? And how do these symptoms affect your ability to work? Ask about their family life. Do you have any family? Is there a family history of similar problems? Does your family have any past medical history of heart disease, cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure, or anything else? Ask about their living arrangements, their home environments. What are your living arrangements? Is there someone available to help at home? Can someone bring you to physical therapy? What type of house or apartment do you live in? Does your home require you to walk long distances or climb stairs? And if there are stairs, how many stairs to enter the home and within the home? Where are And are there any rails? Where are your bathroom and bedroom or located in your house or apartment? Ask about lighting, any rugs, any pets, just their home life in general. 
Ask about exercise. Are you physically active? Do you exercise on a regular basis? Has your exercise routine changed at all? And then other. Are you allergic to anything? Okay, okay. What recreational activities do you enjoy or participate in? Ha <laughs> ha, nice. Me too, me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you had any significant weight gain or loss in the, fa- in the past few weeks? Do you happen to smoke or drink? Okay, all right, no problem. What are your goals for physical therapy? And are you experiencing pain anywhere else in your body? Okay, and which one is your dominant hand? Usually, the shoulder on their dominant side is going to be lower. Okay, so now let's go over some tests that we could be asked to perform. So, blood pressure. The purpose of blood pressure is to measure the, uh, it's a peripheral measurement of the cardiovascular function. The technique, uh, measurements are made with a stethoscope and a sphygmomanometer. Try saying that five times fast. It is usually measured in the arm and should be measured in both arms at least once. The patient's arm should be slightly flexed and comfortably uh, supported on a table, pillow, or in your hand. Uh, Be sure that the arm is free of clothing and place an appropriate size cuff on the arm. Two consecutive uh, beats indicate the systolic uh, pressure and phase one of Krokoff sounds. And the interpretation of it allows you to screen for elevated or depressed values um, it allows you to monitor the patient's response to changes in position as well as response to exercise. Moving on to dermatomes of the upper extremity. The level of C1, the location, there is no innervation to the skin. Level of C2 dermatome is the posterior aspect of the head. A C3 dermatome is the posterior aspect of the neck. A C4 dermatome is the AC joint. A C5 dermatome is the lateral brachial artery. A C6 dermatome is the lateral forearm and tip of the thumb. A C7 dermatome is the palmar aspect of the distal phalanx of the third digit, the middle finger. A C8 C8 is the palmar aspect of the distal phalanx of the fifth digit. T1 is the medial, T1 dermatome is the medial forearm. T2 is dermatome is the medial brachial area. Moving on to dermatomes of the lower extremity. A level two dermatome is the proximal medial thigh. L3 dermatome is the distal anteromedial thigh. L4 dermatome is the medial aspect of the great toe. L5 dermatome is the web space between the great and second toes. S1 dermatome is the lateral to inferior malleolus and the posterior heel. S3, S4 dermatomes are the perineal slash saddle area. Moving on to myotomes and muscles based on the myotome of the upper extremity. So 
level C1 myotome, the action is cervical rotation. The muscles are longissimus capitis and cervicis, splenius capitis and cervicis, semispinalis capitis and cervicis, all of the scalenes, the anterior scalene, middle scalene, and posterior scalene, and the opposite, sternocleidomastoid. Level C2, C3, C4, myotomes. The action is shoulder shrugging, and the muscles are the upper trapezius and levator scap. Level C5, myotomes. The action is shoulder abduction, and the muscles included are supraspinatus and the middle deltoid. Level C6, myotome. The actions are elbow flexion, wrist extension. The muscles included are biceps brachii, brachialis, brachioradialis, extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis, extensor carpi ulnaris. Moving on to C7, myotome, elbow extension, wrist flexion. Muscles are triceps brachii, flexor carpi radialis, flexor carpi ulnaris. C8 myotomes, the action is thumb extension. The muscles include uh, extensor pollicis brevis. T1 myotome, the actions are finger abduction, digit 5 abduction. The muscles are dorsal interossei, abductor digiti minimi. Moving on to myotomes of the lower extremity, L1, L2 myotome. The action is hip flexion, and the muscles included are psoas major and iliacus. Level L3, L4, the action is knee extension of the L3, L4 myotome. The muscles involved are the rectus femoris, vasti, vasti muscles, the vastus lateralis, vastus medialis, and the vastus intermedius. Level L4, L5 myotome, the action is dorsi, ankle dorsiflexion, and the muscle involved is the anterior tibialis. For L5 myotome, the action is great toe extension. The muscle involved is extensor hallucis longus. Level L5, S1 myotome, the action is ankle eversion. The muscles involved are fibularis brevis and longus. At level S1, S2, myotome, the actions are knee flexion, ankle plantar flexion. The muscles involved are the hamstrings, the biceps femoris, the semitendinosus, the semimembranosus, the gastrocnemius, and the soleus. And lastly, the S2, S3, S4 myotome, the action is bowel slash bladder dysfunction. Let's move on to cranial nerve tests. 
So starting off with cranial nerve number one, the olfactory nerve, the afferent or afferent, depending on how you pronounce it, the afferent nerve fibers conduct smell. And the test is to identify familiar smells, such as mint or coffee, maybe, or um, garlic, I think. Mint, I think, is probably the best way to go. Or vanilla. Moving on to cranial nerve number two, the optic nerve. The afferent fibers conduct eyesight. So the test is to test the visual field for cranial nerve number two. Move fingers on the side of the head and move them outward and then forward. Should be equal. Cranial nerve number three, the oculomotor nerve. The efferent fibers conduct all of the eye muscles except the SO and LR and pupillary reflex. So the test for cranial nerve number three, oculomotor nerve, um, upward, downward, and medial gaze, pupillary reaction to light. Cranial nerve number four, the trochlear nerve, the efferent fibers function to uh, for the uh, superior oblique muscle. And the test is downward and lateral gaze for cranial nerve number four, trochlear. Um, cranial nerve number five, the trigeminal nerve, the afferent fibers provide sensation of the face, mucous membranes of the nose, sinuses, mouth, and anterior tongue. The efferent fibers function for the muscles of mastication. The test for cranial nerve number five, the trigeminal, is uh, face sensation or clench the teeth. Cranial nerve number six, the abducens nerve. The efferent fibers function for lateral for the lateral rectus muscle, and the test for cranial nerve number six, the abducens, is lateral gaze. Cranial nerve number seven, the facial nerve. Uh, the afferent fibers uh, function for taste of the anterior tongue, and the efferent fibers uh, function for the efferent muscles. The test for cranial nerve number seven, the facial nerve, is close the eyes tight, smile and show teeth, whistle and puff cheeks, identify familiar tastes. Cranial nerve number eight, the vestibular, or rather the vestibulocochlear nerve, um, the afferent fibers function for hearing and balance. So the test for cranial nerve eight, the vestibulo a cochlear nerve is to hear a watch ticking, hearing tests, balance, and coordination tests. Cranial nerve nine, the glossopharyngeal nerve, the afferent fibers function for touch, pain to posterior tongue and pharynx. The efferent fibers uh, function for the muscles of the pharynx. The test for cranial nerve nine, the glossopharyngeal nerve, is the gag reflex and the ability to swallow. Cranial nerve 10, the vagus nerve, the afferent fibers function for touch and pain to pharynx, larynx, and bronchi, and taste for the tongue. The efferent fibers function for muscles of the palate, pharynx, and larynx. The test for cranial nerve number 10, the vagus nerve, is to say ah, 
um, test for gag reflex and the ability to swallow. Cranial nerve number 11, spinal accessory, the efferent fibers function for the sternocleidomastoid and the trapezius. The test for cranial nerve 11, spinal accessory, is to resist shoulder shrugging. Cranial nerve number 12, the hypoglossal nerve, the efferent fibers function for muscles of the tongue. So the test for cranial nerve number 12, hypoglossal, is tongue protrusion. And if there is an issue, it will deviate towards the weaker side. Next up to bat, reflexes. We're going to go over the deep tendon reflexes. So the guidelines, comparison of both sides of the body, consistent intensity of stimulus, adequate support of the body part. Um, we want to make sure that the muscle is in a slight stretch. We're going to use our reflex hammer. Strike briskly and firmly with a relaxed wrist. We're going to observe rapid uh, rapidity and stretch of response. Um, use the gendrastic maneuver when the patient can't relax. So we're going to try to distract the patient uh, by using another extremity. So let's go over the grading chart of our deep tendon reflexes. A grade of zero, the deep tendon reflex response is there is no response. So that's easy, zero, no response. One plus, sluggish or diminished response. A two plus is active or the expected response. A three plus is more brisk than expected, slightly hyperactive response. A four plus is brisk, hyperactive with intermittent or transient. Uh, excuse me, that is so rude. Four plus, brisk, hyperactive with intermittent or transient clonus. And a five plus is sustained clonus. So. We just passed the 30-minute mark. Why don't you pause right here, take a little break, and come back and meet me in a minute. Ah, wow, you took a little longer than expected, but I'm not mad at you. You're still back. Welcome. So let's go over the reflexes to test. The reflex of the biceps. The biceps reflex is we are testing for the level of C5 to C6, specifically C5. The procedure... For the bicep reflex, you are going to position the uh, patient's elbow flexed and supported at 45 degrees. You're going to palpate the bicep's tendon. You're going to place your thumb on the tendon and fingers under the elbow. You're going to strike the thumb with the reflex hammer. And the expected response for the bicep's reflex, C5, is going to be elbow flexion. For the brachioradialis, we will be testing the level of C6. The procedure for brachioradialis, we're going to have the elbow flexed at 45 degrees, the forearm in slight pronation, the forearm supported on your arm. Then you're going to find the brachioradialis tendon, strike the tendon with the reflex hammer. The expected response for brachioradialis at the level of C6 is forearm pronation and elbow flexion. Next, we will be testing the triceps reflex, which is at the level of C7. The procedure for the triceps reflex is uh, to have the shoulder abducted at 90 degrees and full internal rotation. We're going to have the elbow flexed and relaxed. We're going to support the upper extremity. We're going to tap the triceps tendon with the reflex hammer. And the expected response for the 
triceps reflex for level the level of C7 is elbow extension. Next, we will be testing the patellar. The patellar will be testing um, the reflex of level the reflex of level uh, L3, L4. The procedure is to have the patient sit with their knee flexed and foot unsupported. We're going to palpate the patellar tendon between the patellar and tibial tuberosity. You want to strike the tendon with the reflex hammer. The expected response of the patellar reflex of L3, L4 is knee extension. Next, we will be testing or going over the Achilles reflex. Um, Achilles is at the level of S1, S2, and the procedure for the Achilles is sitting with the knee flexed at 90 and foot unsupported. Uh, passively dorsiflex the ankle to neutral, strike the Achilles tendon with the reflex hammer. The expected response for the Achilles at S1, S2, at the level of S1, S2, um, is plantar flexion. So moving on to superficial reflexes, we will be going over... Um, the guidelines, noxious stimuli and stimulus when necessary. Um, oh, excuse me. Sorry. The guidelines are noxious stimuli when uh, necessary and use the metal end of the reflex hammer. Uh, the reflexes to test are the plantar reflex, which is S1, S2. Uh, you will have the patient sitting at the edge of the table with the feet unsupported. You're going to stroke from the lateral plantar surface of the heel, the lateral plantar surface of the heel, to the base of the fifth digit and across to the ball of the foot to the great toe in one sweeping motion. The expected response for the plantar reflex of S1, S2 is plantar flexion of the great toe. An abnormal response of the plantar reflex of S1, S2 is the Babinski, Babinski sign, which is dorsiflexion of the great toe with or without fanning of the other toes. And this indic indicates uh, pyramidal tract disease. However, it is normal in someone that's less than two years old. The next reflex is the Hoffman sign. So the procedure for Hoffman sign is holding the patient relaxed middle finger between the examiner's thumb and index finger. You want to press your thumbnail down on the patient's fingernail and move downward until your nail clicks under on the end of the patient's nail. The expected response is nothing. An abnormal sign for the Hoffman sign is when a uh, index finger flexion or thumb flexion after the click Repeat several times on both hands for to test for a positive test. Hoffman sign, uh, a positive test for the Hoffman sign indicates an upper motor neuron lesion, um, and it is not a specific test. The next reflex is Lermet's sign. So the procedure for Lermet's sign is to have the patient um, quickly bend their head forward. The expected response is nothing. Uh, an abnormal response for Lermet's sign uh, is electrical sensation that runs down the back and into the limbs. That would be a positive sign. 
This is also a nonspecific test. Moving on to sensation tests, the guidelines. Patients must be alert and cooperative, alert uh, and able to comprehend instructions, able to communicate a response, comfortable in a relaxed position in a quiet room, supported in a seat or lying position on a stable surface. Therapists must be able to explain the purpose of the test, explain the response expected, demonstrate in an area with intact sensation, perform a dry run in area with intact sensation with the patient's eyes open, um, then have the patient close the eyes, test bilaterally, utilize irregular time intervals and or patterns to avoid any guessing, and work from distal to proximal. The terminology for sensation tests are as follows. Intact is normal and an accurate response. Absent, there is no response. And impaired could mean a multitude of things. Hypesthesia is decreased or diminished. Um, hyperesthesia is increased sensitivity or persistence. Paresthesia is abnormal sensation, delayed response, and inconsistent response. So let's go over some superficial sensation tests. So light touch, the procedure, light touch with a cotton swab. Don't swipe, the response, um, yes or no. You're going to test in uh, the dermatome suspected bilaterally. So you're just going to tap it, not swipe it. Um, pain, the pain test, uh, sharp or dull. Uh, the procedure for this test is going, you're going to use a safety pin. You're going to alternate between using a sharp and uh, dull side. The response, sharp, dull, or I can't tell. And you're going to test in the dermatone suspected bilaterally. The pressure test for superficial, superficial sensation. The procedure is going to use your fingertip. Uh, they must indent the skin. Uh, the response, I feel it, uh, test in the dermatone suspected bilaterally. Protective sensation, superficial sensation test. The procedure is to use a monofilament. A grade of monofilament determines sensitivity. 4.17 is normal. 5.07 minimum level of protective sensation. 6.10 is loss of sensation. Going to hold the filament perpendicular to the test site and apply enough pressure to bow the filament, causing a C-shape for one second. You're going to dawn on uncalloused skin, and there are four sites. The plantar surface of the great toe, the first, um, the first uh, metatarsal head, the third metatarsal head, the fifth metatarsal head. The response should be, I feel it. Next, we're going to go over deep sensation tests. Uh, for proprioception, uh, position sense, um, for, a, um, for a static joint sense. Uh, the procedure for proprioception is to passively Move the joint into a position utilizing minimal grip. The response should be up or down. 
Um, I believe for this one, the eyes are also closed as well. Um, next is kinesthesia. The eyes should be closed for this one as well. And that is dynamic joint sense. The procedure is to passively move the affected body part and ask the patient to mimic the movement with the unaffected side, like I said, with eyes closed. Next is cortical slash discriminatory, uh, dis discriminatory tests, which functions to test the cognitive ability to interpret sensations associated with coordination abilities. In ability to perform these tests should be um, should make you suspect a lesion in the sensory cortex or the posterior columns of the spinal cord. The patient's eyes should be closed for these procedures. So the tests two-point discrimination. Uh, the in a two-point discrimination test, the procedure is to use the caliper or a bent paperclip. Going to try to determine the minimum distance that two points are perceived. Two to four millimeters on the lips, six millimeters on the finger pads, eight to 15 millimeters on the palms, and three to four centimeters on the shins. And you're going to test in the dermatome suspected. Tactile slash point localization. The procedure for tactile point localization is to use touch, pressure, or a pin you're going to touch a point on the patient, ask them to tell you where they're being touched, and ask if they can point to the area that was touched. You're going to test in the dermatome that is suspected. Next is stereogenosis. The procedure for stereogenosis is to hand the patient a familiar object, a key or a coin, and ask them to identify it by touching uh, manipulating it with their eyes closed, and the response should be the name of the object. A abnormal response is the inability to recognize the object by touch, and it suggests a parietal lobe lesion. The next uh, test is graphesthesia. The procedure for graphesthesia is to sit next to the patient and write on their hands as if it were a tablet. Use a eraser of a pencil write a letter or a number for numbers four, five, and eight. Those are the easiest to discriminate. The response should be able to name the letter or number. And last is bilateral simultaneous touch slash double discrimination simulation. For this bilateral simultaneous touch slash double simultaneous stimulation, simulation, the procedure is to have the ability to attend to and identify a tactile stimulation that is applied to both sides of the body at the same time. Touch homologous body part on either side or both sides simultaneously. The response should be able to identify which side or both sides when touched. Test in the dermatome suspected. And next we have balance and coordination tests. So coordination tests can be tested through non-equilibrium and uh, equilibrium tests. And the grading are as follows. Four is normal. A three is movement is accomplished with slight difficulty. A two is moderate difficulty demonstrated. And a one means severe difficulty is noted. And a zero 
means the person slash patient is unable to perform a task. The grading is looking for smooth and accurate movements. So non-equilibrium tests for uh, full support of the body. Uh, dysmetria test. The test is for the inability to control force and range. Um, the procedure to pick two or more of these, finger to nose, finger to finger, finger to examiner's finger, and toe to examiner's finger. It's going to look for overshooting or undershooting. The next non-equilibrium test is dysdiakokinesia. The test uh, means the inability to perform rapid alternating movements, or the test is for, excuse me, the test is for um, someone with an inability to perform rapid or alternating movements. Um, the procedure, you would pick two or more of the following, pronation, supination, thumb to index finger, hand padding, opening and closing fist, foot tapping. And you're going to look for rapid changes in direction and the speed can vary. The ataxia test, test is used to determine an inability to control timing and synergy. The procedure is to pick two or more of the following, heel slides, rebound test, figure eight with a finger or toe. You wanna to look for smooth and accurate movements. For equilibrium tests, you're going to pick two or more of the following. Single leg stance, a single lib stance, tandem walking, marching in place, walking in circles, walking on heels and toes. Moving on to balance tests. The sensory portion of a balance exam, we have the somatosensory, which includes superficial and deep, and the vision portion of the um, sensory portion of the balance exam, um, which is cranial nerve testing, two, three, four, and six, and then vestibular. So automatic postural responses, automatic responses to help keep center of gravity over base of support. They occur rapidly. Therefore, they are not under voluntary control. There are four automatic postural responses, ankle strategy, hip strategy, steppage strategy, and susp suspensory strategy. So an ankle strategy is used when the sway is small, slow, and near midline. What you see when pushed forward, there is plantar flexion. When pushed backward, there is dorsiflexion. Or hip strategy it is used when sway is large, fast, and near the limit of stability. The head and hips move in opposite direction. What you see is when the hips, uh, when you're pushed forward, there is hip extension, and when pulled backward, hip flexion. In steppage strategy, it is used when the center of gravity exceeds the base of support and is fast. The lower extremity attempts to reestablish a new base of support by taking a step. What you see when pushed forward, it equals a step backward. When pulled backward, step backward. When pushed from right, there's a step to the left. And when pushed from left, there's a step to the right. And in suspensory strategy, it's used when combination of stability and mobility are required, lowering your center of gravity towards the base of support. And what you see 
is bend your knees and widen your base of support to make yourself more stable. So now we are on to quiet standing tests for balance testing. Um, first is the Romberg test. So with the Romberg test, the procedure you will hold for 30 seconds each, feet together, arms at your side, eyes open, feet together, arms at side, eyes closed, feet together, arms crossed, eyes open, feet together, arms crossed, eyes closed. What the therapist is to look for is an increased postural sway and or loss of balance. Second is a sharpened Romberg. The procedure, hold for 30 seconds each, feet in tandem, arms at side, eyes open, feet in tandem, arms at side, eyes closed, feet in tandem, arms crossed, eyes open, feet in tandem, arms crossed, eyes closed. The third test for balance testing, um, for quiet standing tests rather, is single leg stands. The procedure, hold for 30 seconds each, repeat three times per leg. The average of the scores is your result. Patient stands on one leg. The hips are in neutral, hands on the hip. Eyes are open, then eyes are closed. What the therapist is to look for is when the leg touches the other leg or when the hands are off the hip or when the foot drops when they or when they reach for something, then that is the end of the test. A nudge or push test is next. The procedure is to have the patient standing. The therapist nudges them um, with minimal to moderate force through the pelvis or the sternum, and they are to look for how they compensate. Next are uh, active standing tests. The first test for a active standing test is the functional reach test. The procedure for the functional reach test is to have the patient uh, to be able to stand independently for at least 30 seconds without the support, without any sort of support, and be able to flex the shoulder to at least 90 degrees. The position, uh, you're to have the position, uh, patient position close to a wall with a yardstick at the shoulder height and measure the initial reading from knuckle of the third metacarpal. Patient then reaches forward without moving their feet. Measure the final reading. Final reading minus the initial reading is the functional reach score. So how to interpret the functional reach test? Less than six, um, I believe that's inches. Um, we're just gonna go with inches, maybe centimeters, but I'm gonna say inches. Less than six inches to increase risk for falls. And 6 to 10 is a moderate risk for falls. The next active standing test is the time up and go score, uh, otherwise known as the tug test. The uh, tug test procedure is as follows. When I say go, I want you to stand up from the chair. You may use your arm. You may use the arms of the chair to stand up or sit down. Once you are up, you may take any path you like but I want you to move as quickly as you feel safe and comfortable until you pass this piece of tape with both feet. Turn around and walk back to the chair. I will stop the clock when your back touches the back of the chair. One practice run, two runs that are counted. 
So uh, the interpretation, uh, less than 10 seconds is normal. Less than 20 seconds is good mobility. Less than 30 seconds is problems, can't go outside, requires an assistive device. And anything greater than 14 seconds is a high risk for falls. The next test is the six-minute walk test. The procedure is to measure how far the patient walks in six minutes or until they are too tired to go any further. And the last of the uh, active standing tests is the Berg balance test. Um, it probably won't be asked to be done, but if you want the instructions, uh, it is on page 18 of the cranial nerve testing table 1-4 handout. So I am uh, I'm not going to go scrolling right now, but we'll just ignore that one for now. We'll table it for a later time. So next, we have sensory manipulation tests, um, a.k.a. foam and dome. It's an attempt to take away uh, one, two, or three sensory components of balance and assess how the remaining components compensate. There are six components to the test. The goal is to not lose balance for 30 seconds for each position of the test. The trial is over when the patient moves their arms, changes their foot placement, or opens their eyes during the test and opens their eyes during an eyes closed trial. Excuse me. You can perform the test in standing with feet together, stance, tandem, single leg stance. Um, so all, all, all four should be tested. Standing with feet together, stance, tandem, uh, single leg stance. Uh, progression of testing. Find position that they are unsteady when all three systems are available. Start the test in the last position that they were successful in. Test progression. One, last steady position, eyes open, firm surface. If you can't, go back one position. Last steady position, eyes closed, firm surface. If you can't, somatosensory or vestibular at fault. Three, last steady position, turn head uh, side to side for 30 seconds for on, the, on a firm surface. If they can't, somatosensory at fault. Last steady position, four, last steady position, eyes open, unstable surface, if can't, visual or vestibular at fault. Five, last steady position, eyes closed, unstable surface. If you can't, vestibular at fault. Six, last steady position, turn head side to side for 30 seconds, unstable surface. If they can't, visual at fault. So test interpretation, vision dependent, unstable on two, three, five, and six. Somatosensory dependent, unstable on four, five, and six. Vestibular dependent, unstable on five or six. So moving on to musculoskeletal tests, goniometric measurements of myotomes. Note, if you need more information on the fulcrum, stationary arm, and moving arm, please refer back to the kinesiology notes. This is just the bare minimum information about patient positioning and stabilization. 
So level C1, the action, cervical rotation, the range of motion for C1, zero to 90 degrees. Patient sits in, in a chair with thoracic spine and lumbar spine supported. Stabilize shoulder girdle on both sides. Look as far right as you can. C2, C3, C4, shoulder shrug. C5, shoulder abduction. Shoulder abduction is 0 to 180 degrees. You'd position the patient in supine, abduct the shoulder, stabilize the shoulder. C6, action, elbow flexion, wrist extension. For C6, elbow flexion, forearm is supinated, stabilize the wrist and proximal humerus. Normal range of motion is 0 to 145. For wrist extension, C6, still C6, wrist off the table, elbow flexed at 90 degrees, stabilize the forearm. Normal range of motion for wrist extension is 0 to 70 or 80. C7, the actions are elbow extension, wrist flexion. Range of motion, elbow extension is from 0 to uh, 145. Wait a second. That, I don't think that's right. I think it's just 0. Could be wrong. But what's written here is 0 to 145. Forearm supinated, stabilized wrist and proximal humerus. Wrist flexion, um, 0 to 85 degrees. Wrist off table, elbow flexed at 90, stabilized forearm. I could be mistaken. Maybe I'm just reading this super quick, but yeah, elbow extension should just be measured in the same position, but normal is zero. I don't think anybody's extending their elbow 145 degrees, unless I'm thinking about this all wrong. Um, anyway, C8, the action is thumb extension. Normal range of motion for thumb extension is zero to 20 degrees. The patient position is to have the forearm supinated, Stabilize at the first metacarpal. At T1, the action is finger abduction, fifth digit abduction. Normal range of motion is 0 to 45 degrees. Um, forearm pronated, stabilize the other fingers. Now moving on to the lower extremity. For the level L1, L2, the action is hip flexion. For L1, L2, hip flexion, the normal range of motion is 0 to 20 to 135. The position of the patient is supine with knees flexed, hands on posterior thigh, and push to get into hip flexion, feel for ASIS motion. Level L3, L4, the action for L3, L4 is knee extension. Um, the range of motion for L3, L4, knee extension is the same as knee flexion because it is the opposite motion. Level L4, L5, ankle dorsiflexion. The range of motion for L4, L5, ankle dorsiflexion is to have the knee extended zero to, with knee extended uh, zero to 10. With the knee flexed, it is 0 to 20 degrees. The position for ankle dorsiflexion, L4, L5, uh, 
patient is prone with knees flexed to 90 or extended, stabilized proximal to ankle, resistance at sole of foot. L5, great toe extension. The normal range of motion for L5, great toe extension, is 0 to 70 degrees. If the uh, position the patient supine with the feet off the table, stabilize the metacarpals, uh, metatarsals, and push toe into extension. L5, S1, ankle eversion. The normal range of motion for L5, L5 S1, ankle eversion, is 0 to 15. Uh, position the patient supine with foot off the table. Stabilize the lower leg proximal to the ankle joint. S1, S2. Action. Knee flexion. Actions. Knee flexion. Ankle plantar flexion. Normal range of motion for knee flexion. S1, S2. Is 0 to 130 or 140. You would position the patient supine. Push the knee into flexion with one hand pushing just above ankle and one hand pushing at the proximal thigh. The normal range of motion for the ankle plantar flexion is 0 to 30 to 50 degrees. S1 is 2. For ankle plantar flexion, you would position the patient with the foot hanging off the table, stabilize the proximal to the ankle, and resistance at the dorsum of the foot. And S2, S3, S4 is bowel slash bladder dysfunction. Next, moving on to MMT based on myotomes. Note, if you have more information, if you need more information about the gravity minimized positions and substitutions, please refer back to the kinesiology notes. This is just the bare minimum information about patient position and stabilizations. So level C1, cervical rotation. The muscles for C1, cervical rotation, include longissimus, splenius, semispinalis, uh, capitis, and cervicis, all scalenes, opposite sternocleidomastoid. The manual muscle test for C1, cervical rotation, is supine, head in neutral, and supported on table. Resistance above the ear, resistance given into opposite direction of rotation. Level C2, C3, C4. Action is shoulder shrugging. The muscles involved in C2, C3, C4 shoulder shrugging are upper trapezius and levator scap. Level C5, shoulder abduction. The muscles for C5, shoulder abduction, is, uh, include supraspinatus in the middle deltoid. The manual muscle test for C5, shoulder abduction, is short sit, arm at side, elbow slightly flexed, resistance over arm just above elbow. Level C6, elbow flexion, wrist extension. The muscles involved in C6, elbow flexion, wrist extension, include the biceps brachii, brachialis, brachioradialis, extensor carpi radialis longus and brevis, extensor carpi ulnaris. In C6 elbow flexion, the manual muscle test is to uh, short sit, support at the distal humerus, resistance at the wrist, biceps, supinated, brachialis, pronated, brachioradialis, mid position. Manual muscle test 
4C6 wrist extension. His forearm pronated, stabilized distal forearm. The patient extends the wrist and resistance across the back of the hand. Level C7, wrist extension, wrist flexion. The muscles involved in C7, elbow extension, wrist flexion, include the triceps brachii, flexor carpi radialis, flexor carpi ulnaris. The manual muscle test for C7, elbow extension, is prone, arm at 90, abduction, um, elbow at 90 degree flexion, Stabilize the distal humerus, resistance above the wrist, dorsal side at end range. Manual muscle test for C7 wrist flexion. The forearm is in supination. Stabilize the proximal forearm. Patient flexes wrist and resistance across the palm. Level C8 thumb extension. The muscles involved in C8 thumb extension include the extensor pollicis brevis, and the manual muscle test for C8 thumb extension is uh, to position the forearm in mid-position, stabilize the wrist and CMC joint, and first metacarpal, extend the MP joint while keeping uh, 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 sorry, I couldn't read that. The uh, IP joint slightly flexed, resist at proximal phalanx. Level T1, finger abduction, digit 5 abduction. The muscles involved in T1, finger abduction, digit 5 abduction, include dorsal and tarasii, abductor, digiti, minimi. The manual muscle test for T1, finger abduction, and digit 5 abduction is to position the patient's forearm in pronation, keep the wrist in neutral, fingers in extension, Passively abduct each digit, then have the patient actively separate the fingers. Resistance in pairs at distal phalanx. Moving on to the lower extremity, um, level L1, L2, the action of L1, L2, hip flexion. The muscles involved in L1, L2 hip flexion are the psoas major and iliacus. The manual muscle test for L1, L2 hip flexion is to have the patient short sit. The patient holds onto the table, stabilize the trunk, resistance at distal thigh. Lift your knee up to my hand and don't let me move you. Level L3, L4, knee extension. The muscles involved in L3, L4, knee extension, are the rectus femoris and vasti muscles. The manual muscle test for L3, L4 knee extension include, is the uh, is short sitting with the leg off the table, towel under distal thigh, stabilize the distal femur above the knee joint, and resist at the ankle. Level L4, L5, ankle dorsiflexion. The muscle involved in L4, L5 ankle dorsiflexion is anterior tibialis. The manual muscle test for L4, L5, ankle dorsiflexion, is have the patient short sit, stabilize the ankle, resistance at the medial side of the foot, and push down and out. Level L5, great toe extension. The muscle involved 
in L5 Great Toe Extension is extensor hallucis longus. The manual muscle test for L5 Great Toe Extension is to position the patient supine with the foot off the table, stabilize the metatarsals, one finger resistance at proximal phalanx. Level L5 S1, ankle eversion. At uh, the muscles involved in L5 S1, ankle eversion, is fibularis long, brevis and longus. The manual muscle test for L5 S1, ankle eversion, is to short sit, stabilize above the ankle. Um, put your foot down and out. Resistance at the lateral side of the ankle. Level S1. S2. The action of S1 S2 is knee flexion and ankle plantar flexion. The muscles involved in S1 S2 knee flexion, ankle plantar flexion are uh, the hamstrings and gastrocnemius and soleus. The manual muscle test for knee flexion S1 S2 is prone with the knee at 90. Foot off the t- feet off the table, stabilize the pelvis, resistance at posterior ankle joint. The manual muscle test for ankle plantar flexion, S1, S2, is to position the patient on one foot and two fingers on the table. I believe it's two fingers on shoulder at shoulder level. I could be wrong. I think that might be mistaken. Um, have the patient do 25 heel raises. 25 is a 5. 10 to 24 is a 4. 1 to 9 is a 3. S2, S3, S4. I also think that range, those ranges for the numbers is incorrect. Um, uh, I could be wrong. Anyway, I'm going to have to check the notes. S2, S3, S4, bowel, bladder, dysfunction. And with that, we have just passed the 70-minute mark. I think you have earned yourself a nice five-minute break. Maybe pause this, get yourself some water, do a lap, watch a TikTok or two, and we'll reconvene. I'm going to do the same. See you in the future. Woo! Feel so much more refreshed, don't you? All right, we've moved on to the muscle length portion of the um, shit we need to know for the OSCE. Um, starting with the shoulder looking at the latissimus dorsi and the teres major. Going to position the patient in hook lying position and perform shoulder flexion with little posterior pelvic tilt. Um, Looking at the pectoralis major, same position, hook lying position, with the hands behind the head and stretch. Drop the elbows toward the plinth and see how far from the plinth they are. And the third for shoulder muscle length of the pectoralis minor hook lying position. If one anterior acromion is higher, then it is tight. If one scapula is off the table, then it is tight. Now discussing the elbow, the biceps brachii, putting the patient in supine, passively moving one arm, uh, passively moving arm into the shoulder, Extension, excuse me, I'm sorry. Biceps brachii, supine, passively move the arm into shoulder extension, forearm pronation, and elbow extension. Arm off the edge of the table. If the elbow cannot fully extend, it is tight. 
the triceps brachii. Short sitting, passively move arm into shoulder flexion, forearm supination, and elbow flexion. The elbow cannot fully extend. It is tight. Moving on to the muscle length assessment of the wrist. The wrist flexors. Seated with the hand off the edge of the table with elbow extension and forearm supinated, passively move into wrist extension. The wrist extensors. Um, seated with the hand off the edge of the table with elbow extended and forearm pronated, passively move into wrist flexion. Third, finger flexors. Wrist flexion set up by MP, PIP, and DIP extension. If it is if the finger flexors are tight, relax wrist. Finger extensors. Uh, wrist extension setup plus MP, DIP, and PIP, MP, PIP, and DIP flexion. Measure wrist flexion. If decrease range of motion, then elbow flex then flex elbow to see if increases range of motion. Moving on to the cervical spine of our muscle length assessment. Levator scat. Short sitting in chair, depress shoulder and stabilize to stabilize uh, and stabilize scapula or have them hold the arm into full flexion or hold the arm into full flexion, do lateral flexion ear to shoulder. The lateral flexors, scalenes, SCM and upper trapezius Supine position, if testing right side, put into left lateral flexion, stabilize the shoulder, tilt head in opposite direction. Moving on to the thoracolumbar spine, um, muscle length assessment. For the thoracic fibers, uh, we will have the patient be positioned prone, hands in push-up position, ask them to do a cobra and press up. We want them to clear their belly button. For lumbar extensors, the patient is in a short sit position, so the hamstrings are on slack. Flex the trunk and ask if it feels tight. Moving on to the hip portion of the muscle length assessment. Hip flexors. We would have them do the Thomas test. For ITB and TFL, have them do the Ober test. For hamstrings, do the 90-90 test. And or straight leg test. For the knee, moving on to the knee of our muscle length assessment. Knee flexors, specifically short head of the biceps femoris, as the short head does not cross the hip. Uh, patient is supine, bend the knee and flex the hip. If you feel in the glutes, the glutes are tight. If you feel in the posterior lateral thigh, short head of the biceps, Femoris is tight. Knee extensors, sideline position, vasti, hip in neutral, uh, slash flexion, and flex the knee. Rectus femoris, hip extended, and flex the knee. Moving on to the ankle of the muscle length assessment. Uh, soleus, supine. Patient is supine, dorsiflex with knee bent. Uh, put gastroc on, it puts the knee gastrocs on uh, slack. Gastrocnemius, 
supine dorsiflex with knee straight. Moving on to special tests. First test is the Allen test. It is to test the patency of the arteries, and it is a test for circulation. Same thing. Um, procedure. The patient opens and closes their fist several times, ideally five, and then holds it tight. Pressure is then applied to the radial and or ulnar arteries to occlude them. The patient then opens their hand and the therapist releases one artery. The therapist lets go of the ulnar artery and then see if the hand turns pink within three seconds and then the test is repeated, but with the radial artery. Why? Pumping the hand decreases the blood in the hand. Someone with diabetes could have circulation that is not intact. Tenel sign, uh, or Tenel's test, whichever you wish to call it, is a test to determine the presence of a neuroma or neuritis that will give you the rate of regeneration of a nerve. Procedure. Vigorous tapping on the ulnar nerve between the olecranon and the medial epicondyle. Why? If a patient has a neuroma, nerve entrapment, or neuritis, this vigorous tapping will send a sensation of pins and needles down the forearm and into their hand in the ulnar nerve distribution. For example, the pinky and the medial half of the ring finger. Extra information on Tenel's sign. This test can be done just about anywhere. The fibular head, medial part of the ankle. It can also be done for carpal tunnel. Percuss the base of the palm over the flexor retinaculum. The patient should feel pins and needles in the median nerve distribution, the thumb, the index, the middle, and radial side of the ring finger. Phalan's test, or Phalan's, however you choose to pronounce it. It's your life, not my business. Phalan's test is a test to reproduce the symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome, median nerve entrapment in the carpal tunnel. A positive test for Phalan's test is a reproduction of tingling and numbness in the median nerve distribution. The procedure of Fallon's test. The patient places the dorsal aspects of both hands against each other and pushes their wrist into maximum flexion. Hold position for one minute. Ask after 10 seconds, 30 seconds. If they feel symptoms, you stop the test. This test can be done unilaterally and bilaterally. Moving on to the lateral epicondylitis test. The lateral epicondylitis test is a test used to determine inflammation of the wrist extensors. A positive lateral epicondylitis test means that pain is felt over the wrist extensors and over the lateral epicondyle. Confirm by palpating over the lateral epicondyle and seeing if there's pain. The procedure of the lateral epicondylitis test can be performed passively and actively. Passively, the lateral epicondylitis test can be done if you stretch the muscle, the therapist extends the elbow, ulnarly deviates, flexes, wrist, and fingers. Actively, the lateral epicondylitis test can be performed if you activate slash contract the muscle. The patient makes a fist, extends the elbow and wrist, while the physical therapist resists the motion. Why? Lateral epicondylitis is a muscular tendinous problem. Gripping activities hurt due to their neutralizing synergy. When the flexors are used to grip, extensors have to contract also. Moving on to supraspinatus slash drop arm test. The supraspinatus slash drop arm test is a test used to determine a tear in the supraspinatus. A positive test, the supraspinatus and drop arm test, is equal to a shoulder shrug caused by the deltoid. 
the procedure of the supersynatus and drop arm test is to have the patient's arm passively abducted to 90 degrees, and then they're asked to slowly lower it and down to their slide. If they're able to hold it up, a gentle tap at 90 degrees will cause the arm to fall to their side. Physical therapist puts one hand on the shoulder to stabilize and one hand under the arm in case it falls. If the patient shrugs their shoulder when holding their arm up, it is a shrug sign. Moving on to the slump test. The slump test is a test for neurodynamic mobility. Use this test if you suspect a dural irritation or adhesions. The dura is a loose sheath around the spinal cord, in case you didn't know. The slump test procedure is as follows. This is a sequential and progressive stretch of the dural until the patient's symptoms are reproduced. Once you reproduce them, you stop the test. The patient sits with hands behind their back. Actively flex the patient's thoracic uh, and lumbar spine for slumping, slouching, whatever. Does this reproduce their symptoms? Physical therapist adds overpressure sometimes. The head remains in a neutral position while they are slumping. First slump, head remains in neutral. Then have the patient flex the neck. Actively extend one knee and then the other and then both at the same time. If they cannot extend their knee all the way, it could be their hamstrings. So if you have them extend their neck and their symptoms go away, their issue is in the dura. The PT dorsiflex, the patient dorsiflexes on one side and then the other, and then on both. Why? You are assessing the excursion of the neural tissue within the vertebral canal and intervertebral foramen. Moving on to the Ober test. The Ober test is a test for iliotibial band contractures or tightness. The procedure is as follows for the Ober test. The patient is positioned in a side-lying position with the affected leg side up. The patient can flex their bottom leg for stability, and they can hold onto the side of the table for extra stability. The knee is flexed while the therapist extends and abducts and externally rotates the involved hip with one hand. The pelvis is stabilized with the other hand as the limb is low is allowed to lower. Do not let the pelvis side bend as the leg is lowered. The therapist slides their hand from the patient's knee to their ankle to see if the knee drops. If there is any tightness, the limb won't lower to meet another the other leg. For example, if the knee does not drop down to the other leg, it is a positive test. The iliotibial band will be tighter with the knee inflection. The therapist wants to flex the knee, abduct, and externally rotate and extend the hip. This is to get the IT band over the greater trochanter. Moving on to the Thomas test, a.k.a. the TRI test, a.k.a. the TRI test, a.k.a. T means tensor, R means rectus, and I is iliopsoas, TRI test. Thomas test, TRI test, TTT, ta-ta-ta, pa-pa-pa. The Thomas test is a test for the tightness of the hip flexors, rectus femoris, and iliotibial band. Um... The procedure is as follows. The patient is positioned at the very end of the table 
Ask them to lie supine and draw both lower extremities up tightly to their chest. Maximum hip and knee flexion. The patient is required to hold that position with both hands. One leg is then lowered toward the table while the other leg remains in maximum hip and knee flexion. The therapist has to hold the patient's knee when the, when the opposite hip is extended to make sure the pelvis doesn't move. Tightness in the hip flexors will cause the thigh to raise and stay off the table regardless of the knee being flexed or extended. If the thigh drops down to the table when the knee is extended, then the tight muscle is the rectus femoris. If the lower extremity abducts when the leg is flexed, then the IT band is tight. Why? If the thigh is off the table, the iliopsoas or rectus is probably tight. If knee is an extension and the hip drops down, the thigh will drop to the table. The rectus was tight. If you put the knee in extension and if the hip does not move, the thigh will stay on the table. The iliopsoas is tight. To see if the rectus is tight, the therapist pushes the knee into flexion. If the patient has hip abduction, when they extend their hip and knee, it means their IT band was tight. Moving on to the hamstring tightness test and or 90-90 test. It is a test to see if the patient has tight hamstrings. Obviously, the procedure is as follows. The patient is positioned supine and asked to grasp one leg behind the thigh in order to position the knee in 90 degrees of flexion and 90, 90 degrees of hip flexion and 90 degrees of knee flexion. The patient is then required to extend his knee or her knee or their knee as far as possible. It should be 15 degrees or less. Moving on to the Thompson test. The Thompson test is a test for a rupture in the Achilles tendon. The procedure is as follows for the Thompson test. The patient is positioned prone with feet hanging off the table. The therapist grasps the gastroc slash soleus bellies and squeezes. If normal, the foot will plantar flex. If the Achilles is torn, the foot won't move. A hatchet strike deformity if the Achilles is torn. Moving on to the straight leg raise test. Straight leg raise test is a test for neural tension. A positive test is if a patient complains of radiating pain to the lower extremities. If stretching slash pulling pain, if stretching slash pulling pain, it's probably hamstring. If there's tingling, probably the dura. The procedure for the straight leg raise test is as follows. The patient is positioned supine and the therapist passively flexes the patient's hip with the knee extended. If a patient feels tingling when you lift up their leg, meaning when you flex their hip, decreasing the flexion a little to get rid of the symptoms and then dorsiflex the ankle to see if the pain comes back. If it does, it is a dural issue. The guidelines. If there is pain from 0 to 30 degrees, the hip joint or severely inflamed or it's hip joint involvement or a severely inflamed nerve root. If there is pain from 30 to 50 degrees, it is likely a sciatic root. There is pain from 50 to 70 degrees, it is the hamstrings. If there is pain from 70 to 90 degrees, there is a hip pathology or it is the SI joint. And if it causes neural type symptoms, if they only have back pain, 
it is not a positive test. Next test is the anterior draw test. It is a test to determine an ACL tear. A positive anterior draw test is excessive movement of the tibia on the femur. The procedure is as follows for the anterior draw test. Position the patient supine with the knee bent. The therapist sits on the toes of the patient. Place the hands around the tibia to ensure that the hamstring muscles are relaxed. Draw the tibia forward on the femur. Next is the genuvarus stretch. The genuvarus stretch is a test for the, determining the integrity of the lateral cruciate ligament. The procedure is as follows, or the genuvarus stress test. The patient is positioned supine with the knee extended. The therapist should apply a varus force to the patient's knee. Be sure not to rotate the hip in application of force. Repeat test with knee in slight flexion. Next is the genuvalgus stress test. The genuvalgus stress test is a test to determine the integrity of the medial cruciate ligament. The procedure for the genuvalgus stress test is as follows. The patient is is positioned supine with the knee extended. The therapist should apply a valgus force to the patient's knee. Be sure not to rotate the hip in the application of force. Repeat the test with the knee in slight flexion. Next, and last, we have extremity girth measurements. Extremity girth measurements is measurement to assess for muscle atrophy, hypertrophy, or swelling. The circumference of the limb should be measured at regular intervals along the axis of the body part. A bony prominence is used as a reproducible landmark for reassessing the patient's status. Bony landmarks include elbow, the olecranon or epicondyles, the knee, tibial tuberosity, ankle, figure eight measurement. First, measure with ankle in neutral position. We're going over the figure eight. You couldn't tell. Start with the ankle in a neutral position. Go over the navicular tubercle. Then go to the cuboid groove. Then back to the anterior tibialis tendon. Then inferior to the medial malleolus. Then superior to the dome of the calcaneus. Then inferior to the lateral malleolus then back to the anterior tibialis tendon. I'm going to read that back only because I might have messed up, and I just want to be sure that I did not. For the ankle figure eight measurement, you start with the ankle in neutral position. Then, with the tape measure, go over the navicular tubercle. Then, go to the cuboid groove. Then, back to the anterior tibialis tendon then inferior to the medial malleolus, then superior to the dome of the calcaneus, then inferior to the lateral malleolus, then back to the anterior tibialis tendon. And then you have your figure eight measurement. What would you do next? A systems review. Why? To rule out the underlying problem, figure out constitutional symptoms. Observation and inspection. Edema, pressure. Uh, what is this? It's the last page. Yep. To rule out constitutional symptoms. Okay. So symptoms review. Systems review. Why? To rule out an underlying problem. Uh, figure out constitutional symptoms. 
Next, observation and inspection, edema, posture, redness, etc., at the area where the pain is coming from. Palpation, and then range of motion. Active range of motion, contractile tissue. Passive range of motion, inert tissues. Accessory motion, graded on a Kaltenberg scale. And, I mean, we already went over that to begin this, so that's, that's fine. Um, that concludes the review. Um, I just want to say to anybody listening to this that uh, best of luck studying for the OSCE and the rest of the finals. Um, I know we're all tired. We're all shot. And I don't know if anybody even listened this far, but just uh, sending you positive vibes and prayers and well wishes and a lifelong um, and successful career as a future doctor of physical therapy because I'm sure we're all going to do fine. I want to end with a quote before departing. Um, If you do not sacrifice for what you want, you are going to end up sacrificing what you want. So, just remember your why. Remember, um, just, you know, the hardest thing you've ever gone through in your life, you've gotten through it. So, if this is the hardest thing that we have to do for our dreams, we'll, we'll be fine. But yeah, I'm tired. It's 11 o'clock at night. Been at this all day. Ah! <sighs> And with that being said, that concludes the DBT School Study Guide, Oski Extravaganza, Threat Level Midnight, uh, whatever you want to call this podcast episode. I am so tired. I'm probably going to do a little more review after this. I know you're listening, Christian. You get a hundred, and you get a hundred, and you get a hundred, and you get a hundred. Everybody gets a hundred! Why are you still listening? Podcast is over. Peace.